Every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. Because after all, struggle is the antecedent of growth. It is only when we embrace the pain, heartache, and discomfort that punctuate our lives that we can ultimately find the strength we need to grow from those moments. Welcome to episode 14 of Glorious Professionals brought to you by GoRuck Media. I'm Jason here with Emily. Our guest tonight is Ryan Mannion, the president of the Travis Mannion Foundation, a nonprofit her mother started after the passing of her brother Travis in Iraq on April 29th, 2007. Emily and I and GoRuck, we've been proud, longstanding partners with TMF. This past year, we rucked the Marine Corps Marathon with Ryan and her team. We watched Navy beat up on Army in Philadelphia together. At GORUCK HQ, we hosted a 9-11 Heroes run in Jack's Beach, Florida. So we go way back, and it's an honor to have you on the show, Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's, let's dig in. Let's start with kind of how you grew up. Let's start with your parents, your father, Colonel Mannion, a great man. I've, I've gotten to spend a little time with him. I, I love that man. He was serving throughout your, your youth. What was that like to grow up around that, that service? It's so funny because... Um, I get asked that question a lot. Like, what was it like to grow up in a military household as a military child? And it wasn't something that I actually realized I was doing until I was out of my childhood. Like right now is the time where I like reflect and I look at like, wow, my life was very different than a typical child. And I, I'm able to do that now with my own kids. So I've got three kids. They have all grown up in the same town. They know nothing other than this small town. I mean, you know, we go places, we travel, but this is their home. And I remember a couple years ago, we were having a discussion about, you know, well, maybe we should move closer to Philadelphia. And I'm talking like 10 miles down the road here. And you would have thought like their worlds were crashing down. And so I talked to them a lot about, well, you know, you know, when mom was born, she was born in North Carolina. And she lived there for two years and then she moved to Maryland and then she moved to California and then she moved back to Virginia. And so it wasn't until I got into junior high that I had lived anywhere for more than two years. And they can't even conceptualize that. It's like, and but I look at what that taught me and it taught me a lot of things. And the number one thing it taught me was just about resilience. Like as a kid moving from place to place and starting over again, it's tough. And I mean, I think it would be, I think it would be even tougher for kids these days, but you know, I was very envious when I got to junior high and I knew my dad had left active duty. So my dad did 11 years active duty and then he did 19 years reserve. And so when we came to Pennsylvania, he took a job with Johnson and Johnson, but I knew this is where we were going to be. I remember you know, making this group of friends. And I'm like, okay, I've got my friends and I'm going to be friends with these people for more than two years. Right. And I always felt like I was a little bit of the outcast because they would talk about like, oh, remember when we were in first grade and we used to do this. And, you know, I said, gosh, I always wish that I had a friend that I could say, oh, we've known each other since we were in kindergarten. You know, our moms were in the same Lamaze class together. Like I never had that. but. I think about a lot of times when I, I talk about what it was like to grow up in a military household, I say, like, I understood from a very young age what service meant. Um, I watched my dad 
you know, growing up uh, as an active duty Marine. But then even in the reserves, you know, my dad worked a nine to five job at Johnson and Johnson, but every other weekend he was gone. And then a month out of the year, he was on training. And so that actually was a little bit harder because he had a full-time job, but he also was gone every other weekend. And you understand what service is about. But it wasn't until I was older, I was removed, I was in college, and you know, and my brother joined the Marine Corps and ultimately gave his life that I understood what sacrifice was about. Two very different things that I learned in very different times in my life, I would say. So what was it like for your brother then? I mean, you, you talk about he always had a buzz cut. Yeah, always had a buzz cut. But it's funny because people always think that my brother, you know, they look, there's pictures of my brother wearing my dad's, um, wearing my dad's uniform when we were young in North Carolina. And people were like, well, Travis, he must've known that he wanted to be a Marine uh, from the day that, that he was born. And I'm like, no, he didn't really talk about wanting to be a Marine. That wasn't like, oh, well, we know Travis is going to go into the Marine Corps. Now, I also know that the first song I remember singing with my brother, and we have it like on a cassette tape is the Marine Corps hymn. Like a, a VHS from one of those home videos from, yeah, from way yeah. it's like, why isn't right. it on your iPhone, mom? You know? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there was a lot of Marine Corps influence in our lives, but my dad never pushed my brother to, you know, say, you know, and I, and I find that actually with a lot of people my age now that have young kids, like no one's like pushing their kids to enter the, the service, but it becomes a natural effect because they see that life, they understand it. And so the first time I realized that Travis was going to join the military was when he got an appointment to the Naval Academy. And I was like, okay, my brothers. And, and I assumed that while he had the opportunity to pick Navy or Marine Corps, he was certainly going to choose uh, the Marines, which he, he did. In, in some similar fashion, I, I moved around a ton as a kid. So this resiliency and these sort of you know, the fight club, single serving friends. I mean, my, my single serving friends were, were also a, a year or two, you know, and it builds a certain kind of character or response to things, but I didn't grow up around overt service like you did. I mean, for someone who doesn't do that or hasn't been in the military ecosystem, I mean, what are the specifics of that? What does that do for your outlook? You know, I, I have this one memory that really made me feel set apart from my friends. And I guess I was like 11 years old. So I, I, it, was, it was during the Gulf War. And so the Gulf War was like the first time where, you know, again, my dad talks about, he did 30 years in the Marine Corps. And he said, but these men and women post 9-11 are doing more in one year, two years than I did in my entire 30 years. Like he's very humble about his service. But I remember when the Gulf War happened and, and I remember my mom went out and, and her and a bunch of other Marine spouses, they had these shirts made and it was like, support our troops, you know, Gulf War, support our troops. And I remember like my mom gave me one, it was like a, a, desert color, like a tan color shirt. And it said, support our troops, the Gulf War. And I remember I wore it to school and the kids were like making fun of me. You know, they were like, what is that? Like, and not in a bad way, like not being bullied, but like, you know, they didn't understand. And, and frankly, I don't even think they knew the Gulf War was happening. Right. 
And I was like, well, my dad's a, a Marine and he's going to fight in this war. He never actually deployed for the Gulf War. But, you know, I was like, I was a proud Marine daughter at that point. And I remember feeling very disconnected um, from my uh, companions and my friends and, and that they didn't understand, you know, and they weren't like getting behind and how, like I saw all these Marine moms that were putting together these shirts and like, you know, doing this fundraising drive. I don't know what they were fundraising for, but something military related and like, let's get these shirts out. And so I show up at school, like I've got one of these shirts and people are like, what are you wearing that shirt for? And so there were that, that's a very, um, very vivid memory for me of where I felt that disconnection between the other part of society that didn't have that connection to the military. Do you think that disconnection continued through your high school life and maybe college or were you finding people that you could relate to as you grew older? No, because I think once my dad left active duty, um, I kind of disconnected from that part of myself, right? Like I, you know, when I grew up, I was living on bases, like lived in Camp Lejeune, um, lived on the base, you know, lived in Crofton, Maryland on the base, you know, went out to Monterey and lived on the base where my dad was at Naval post-grad school. So like, I was like around that. Once my dad left active duty, it was like, what does your dad do? He works for Johnson and Johnson. You know, like I wasn't like, and he's also a Marine. And it wasn't that I was like, ashamed of his service, but that was like not something that I was going to identify with to my new surroundings. So I didn't, I didn't play that card. I will say, um, I was like, Oh, my dad works for JJ. Oh, so does my dad. So does my dad. So does my dad. It was, it was kind of like that. I mean, so I personally went through the same thing when I was transitioning out. It was, I was very comfortable to never talk about I didn't want it to overly define me or something because the, the envi- not every environment is like base life. Base life's kind of like, you know, Pleasantville or whatever. Right. I mean, everyone is just going the speed limit and not a, a mile per hour over. I mean, it's just, you know, everything's very orderly and it's just kind of a different way of life. I mean, these bases are enormous also. Yeah. They're cities. It's its own way of life within our way of life. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to describe to people until you've been on a base and it takes you 45 minutes to get from this side of base to the other side of base, how, how big they are and just, just what that way of life sort of feels like. Well, I remember too, it was funny because when I first moved to Pennsylvania, I would always refer to the grocery store as the commissary. So it'd be like, oh, you know, can you come over and play? Yeah, my mom, my mom just went to the commissary when she gets back and people are like, what the heck is the commissary? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, what do you mean? It's the commissary, you know? So there were like little things that, and again, I kind of pulled away from it. I was like, oh, it's called the grocery store. And, and I pulled away from that part of myself for a long time. And I would say like through junior high and high school, but then when Travis went to Navy, I was like all in because I was proud sister number one. So I I kind of dove back in and I was like, you don't know what a commissary is? Well, that's your fault. That's too bad. You know, like you don't know what the Naval Academy is? Well, you're missing out. So I went through a little bit of like that period where I was just like, I'm the white suburban female and my dad works for a pharmaceutical company. And that's what I'm going to tell you about myself. We talk a lot about sort of this resiliency in our kids what are we going to, how are we going to teach this to our kids? Right. And because we're, you know, we're planning to stay here for a while, you know, probably like you and these kids are 
not going to know anything different, but I, I didn't move growing up. I spent, you know, the first 18 years of my life here in Jacksonville, Florida, and still somehow found a path to service. So it's interesting to think that it's, you can get to it in different ways. And I, and I think about this in terms of you too. It's like, you know, you grew up in service and yet your calling came, came later. Absolutely. I think that had it not been for my brother's death, like I, I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And I mean, I would 100% be living a different life, uh, not one that was based around service for sure. So let's walk our way forward there. Let, let's talk about 9-11. And, and you talk a, a lot about the confusion that you felt. And I can just completely and 100% relate to that. And, you know, we're, we're in the middle of this sort of pandemic now. And there's a lot of parallels to sort of chaos and everything and, you know, people's response to stuff. And there, there's confusion now. It feels a little different. But, but 9-11, talk about what that confusion meant to you. Well, you talk about my dad serving in, in the Marine Corps. Like, I, my dad was a Marine. My dad was in the military. I didn't, I had no concept other than a small little conflict during the Gulf War, of which the furthest my dad got to that was, you know, heading back to Camp Lejeune to do some stuff down there during that time. But like, he didn't go anywhere, right? There was no sense of like danger or fear from my family. And so when Travis went to Navy, I largely felt like my brother was entering into live a life similar to my dad's, which has been, you know, as far as it pertained to serving in the Marine Corps, relatively easy. So I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind that there would be some inherent sense of danger from him going to Navy and joining the Marine Corps. And so, you know, on September 11th, my dad was, his reserve unit was at the Pentagon. And that day he was actually doing, um, he was up in North Jersey doing a United Way like service project with Johnson and Johnson. And so just happened to be like J&J's day of service through the United Way. And I was in college, my phone rang and I was actually asleep and my phone rang and my mom's like, I, I answered the phone and my mom's like screaming on the other end of the line, like, oh my gosh, you know, something's happening. Turn on the TV. And I was the only person in my house at college. All my roommates were already at class. And um, I turned on the TV and like two minutes after I turned on the TV, we both watched as the second plane hit the World Trade Center. And, you know, I'm like still like waking up. I'm like, what's happening? And she's just freaking out. And she's like, I can't get a hold of your father. I've tried to call him a thousand times, you know, but he's not answering his phone and he's up in North Jersey. And so like, I don't, I'm like staring at the TV, like, what the heck do I do? Like, I have no idea what to do now. Uh, And I was like, all right, well, I've got class at 1030. I guess I'm going to, I guess I'm going to go to my English class. And so before I left for class, I had found out that like, you know, the Naval Academy was on lockdown. My mom had connected with my dad. And so, but I have like a thousand thoughts running through my head as everybody in the world did at that time. Um, and I remember I walked into my English class and 
you know, I almost went there out of curiosity, like, well, how's, how's this going to go? You know, how, how are we going to actually run class? And my English professor was like, listen, you know, something's happening and our world today is going to be, you know, different than it was yesterday. And, you know, I don't know what that means, but what we're going to do today is just pull out a piece of paper and write down everything you're thinking. And so we sat there for like the whole hour long class and, you know, we just wrote. And it was just a few years ago, I was going through old boxes and I found the notebook of the, and the paper that I had written in. And, you know, I, you know, of course I'm just writing like, what's going on? They're saying it's terrorism. Like, you know, I can't believe this. And then I went on to write about, you know, my biggest fear is that, you know, my dad's a Marine and he's going to have to go to war. And my brother is at the Naval Academy and he's going to go to war. And if something ever happened to either of them, there's no way I could go on living. And I found that piece of paper after Travis had been killed. And I didn't remember writing it. Like I, I didn't remember what I had written on that day. If you had asked me and I never found it, I'd be like, I just remember we were supposed to write our thoughts down. I wouldn't have remembered what I wrote, but like reading those words after Travis had been killed, I was like, oh my gosh, like my biggest fears were realized, you know? And, and it's just crazy to think that this, you know, 20 year old kid is sitting in English class and like that what I put down on that paper happened. So what was that moment like when you, when you reread that with, with all the perspective that you have now? Um, I remember grabbing my husband and being like, boy, crap, look what I wrote. Like, I remember this day, like, look, look what I wrote down. And, and it's funny because, um, I went to Widener university, which is right on the outskirts of Southern Philadelphia. And he went to LaSalle university, which is right downtown in Philadelphia. And I was dating him. He was like, oh, come to my apartment. And so I drove to his, and he was like steps from City Hall, right? Like right by the art museum was his apartment. And I drove to his place and we were hanging out. And of course, it's like me and his roommates just sitting around and we're just like glued to the TV watching the news. And the phone rang and it was my mom. And I answered the phone and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm at Dave's. And she's like, what do you mean you're at Dave's time? She's in the city. And you know, my dad gets on the phone. He's like, get in your car and drive home. You, you know, because like they were just scared. Like, of course, they don't want their daughter like in a major city in the center of a city. And meanwhile, Dave's like, damn. Yeah. I'm like, I got to go. But, <laughs> you know, I was like, it, it, and he's like, I remember when your parents called. He's like, I remember your parents calling being like, leave right now. And just to think of like the magnitude of what happened that day. And, and for me, like, you know, September 11th affected everyone in the entire country. Right. But like to think about how the events of September 11th led to my brother's death six years later, it, it, it's crazy. Like that moment in September, I, I did not realize how much that moment was going to change the entire trajectory of my life. How could, how could you, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it takes so many steps to get there, but it's true. It's, it was a, it was a seminal event that led to, you know, change your life. So what was Travis's response before we get to the next, mm -hmm. the next steps? You know, what was Travis's response? 
Because look, I mean, it, it's, it's really hard. You mentioned this, but it's really hard to convey how true your statements are about pre 9-11, this idea that you're going to go to war was just, it just wasn't going to happen. You know, I mean, Vietnam, we learned those lessons, but I mean, you've got decades in between anything significant. Right. It doesn't lead to things like the invasion of Iraq or, you know, going into Afghanistan, stuff like that in a pre 9-11 world. And then it does. Right. And so your, your brother, there he is. And I know the type that your brother is. God, God bless America for having such types. You know, by the way, you're, you're cut from the same cloth. And- <laughs> It, it's just, you know, what was his response? Because he's, you know, if he's going to join the Marines, guess what? Yeah, I mean, I don't really recall. I don't actually even recall talking to Travis specifically about September 11th. Like, I don't, I mean, did we have conversations? I'm sure I don't remember them. But I do remember that class, that group, everything turned a lot more serious, right? So you've got these 18-year-olds that all of a sudden, they're a nation at war and they know they're graduating in two years and, you know, and they've got their friends that are ahead of them that are, you know, already over in Iraq while they're still in college. And I think the first time where it became real for Travis was when JP Blacksmith was killed. So JP was a year ahead of Travis or maybe two years played on the football team at Navy, went into the Marine Corps, and um, he was killed in the first battle of Fallujah. And I remember when Travis learned that JP had been killed and it was just like, and, and I remember hearing that JP had been killed and I didn't even know him, right? But hearing that someone from the Naval Academy that just the year before was in college where my brother was and knowing they went the same path, they went Marine Corps and then um, ended up losing their life in Iraq. Like that's when things began to feel really real. Like, oh my gosh, like this is happening. I think for that whole group of midshipmen, it turned into, you know, everything got more serious in terms of their training, in terms of their purpose for why they were there at a um, service academy. But I also think at the end of the day, they were all also still college kids, right? You know, they were still having fun and taking advantage of the last couple of years they had to be able to do that before things got really real. So Travis eventually, hard charger that he is, chatted with several of his buddies from, met him through Travis Manning Foundation folks and just in, in general, you know, Travis being who he is, of course, he's going to choose the hardest path. It's it, it sort of in his blood. I send me, you know, that's kind of the, the battle cry in, in my community, right? It's like, send me. Mm -hmm. We'll, we'll fast forward a little bit. I mean, you recently wrote a book called the knock at the door for, for those out there. If you don't know what that is, it's the uniformed officers come to your home and tell you that your, your loved one is, is passed. You used it as a beautiful way to, to make it bigger than just your story, not just your co-authors, but just everyone has a knock at the door. And you go from 9-11, things get a little bit more real. And there's a little trickle when you're in this sort of circle, this circle of your, your father's serving and your, your brother's definitely now serving. It, nothing will prepare you for it though. That's one of the, the things that I, I took away. And I've read, I've read your book twice now. 
it's it's not a book I want to read every day, but both times I've read it, I've said this is this is a book everyone should read. N- number one, because this idea of building a bridge between the military and civilian worlds, understanding what services and what sacrifices and what this way of life is and why why it's so rewarding. And you can't have reward if there's if there's nothing to lose. And and there was very much to lose. Let, let's talk about how your life changed. Yeah. Um well, you know, before um, the knock at the door, and we were a nation at war, um, I was largely trying to push any sense of fear um, about Travis out of my head. And I, and I actually talk about it a lot. I talk about it in the book that, like, Travis did a deployment to Iraq, and he was killed on his second deployment. At the time where he was killed, it was it was during the surge. I mean, it was it was a one of the toughest periods in Iraq. Um, there were a lot of men and women that were giving their lives, and and you were seeing it. It was out there. It was on the news every single day. And I kind of played this game with myself, where I it was like this needle in the haystack type thing, where I'd be like, well, God bless them thoughts and prayers with the family, but that's just not going to happen to my brother. You know, I I did this thing, you know, it's not going to happen to us. And so as much as you think you can even comprehending, preparing for that, you know, people talk about like, well, you know, you got to put yourself in the mindset of what if they don't come home? Like I never put myself in that mindset. It was just not like, it was not an option. And so after Travis was killed, it was, I think we all were, I think we all were just so overwhelmed with shock about what was happening that we really didn't know. I I didn't really know how we would move forward um, as a family. I would say that those thoughts were very fleeting. You know, when you lose someone, whether it's in service to this country or in another way from a tragic event. You know, I lost my mom to cancer and I lost my brother in war in Iraq. I watched my mom suffer for eight months. It was terrible. But there was a certain comfort I took in the fact that I was able to be with her. I was able to say the things I wanted to say to her. You know, when you suffer a loss that's just a knock at the door where it's like, hey, you know, that person you were talking to yesterday, they're no longer here. It's hard for your body to process that. And the idea of shock and, and the emotions, both physical and mental that take over your body initially are, they're pretty unbelievable. And I remember the day of Travis's funeral, um, my dad said something that continues to stick with me to this day. And he pulled my mom, my husband and I into my parents' bedroom and he said, listen, you know, we were all in the same place. We were all in a state of shock. And he said, listen, I don't, I don't know what happens from here, but I know no matter what we move forward, making Travis proud. And we move forward, continuing the legacy of service that, that he demonstrated in his life. And, you know, we didn't know what that meant, but that meant something to me when he said that, because it was the first time where it was like, okay, this is the path forward, whatever this will be. Like my dad has just given us his commander's intent of how we're going to move forward as a family. And so 
though that small two minute speech that he gave to us, like was okay. We're going to get out of this shock period and we're going to figure out what's happening here. I mean, that's just, that's kind of person that your dad is. Yeah. And not everybody has that person in their life at that time, you know, to guide you through something, even to say, I don't have the answers, but we're going to stay in this together and we're going to honor him. I think that's, you know, it's a gift in a time where, where it's just so tough. And I think it was kind of a wake up call for all of us because it was like, you know, for the first few days, it was like pandemonium. You know, we all walked around with glasses of whiskey in our hands, just trying to self-medicate. And, you know, I slept in bed with my parents in the, you know, my husband slept upstairs in my parents' house and I'm like, good night. And I climbed in between, my, you know, I mean, it was just like, it was pure chaos. And so we needed somebody to say, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to level set here and just put this out there. And you know, I think that was the catalyst for how we moved forward as a family, you know, from that day forward. So let's talk about the grief and the stress and the loss and, and all of it. You know, I, I ask you to kind of dig this stuff up for the same reasons that you wrote your book, which is it's not about you. It's about taking what you've learned from your experience to, to help others. And it goes back to the speech that your dad gave, the, the two-minute speech in your, your dad's bedroom that he gave you guys, right? Yeah. There's just so much that's so hard, and it just hits you like a freight train. And you don't know what's, you don't know what's up, down, left, right. If, if, you, if you all don't know Ryan, I mean, she is a, I'll, I'll talk about you like you're not, right, you know, here with us, you know? Very goal-oriented and go-getter and, you know, a leader. I mean, I'll, where are we going, Ryan? I'll follow you, right? That, that's the kind of person that, that she is. And that's the way that she leads the Travis Manion Foundation. And you talk a lot about how that's not the person you were for a while. No, it wasn't. Um, I went through a really tough time. I was, I was very attuned to honoring my brother's legacy from the moment he died, from the moment my dad said those words. But I had to really find my way into what that was. And, you know, I talk about in the book how the first thing I did was run a marathon. And, you know, for me, like, that was huge. But, I mean, um, because it was so incredibly hard, one of the songs on my playlist was Fergie's Big Girls Don't Cry. And whenever I was feeling, like, super sorry for myself, as I was training for that marathon, I'd put that song on. <laughs> And, and I, and I think like that Travis was just like laughing at me from above. Like, are you, <laughs> are you kidding me right now? Like my sister's like um, a 15 mile training run, listening to Fergie's big girls don't cry, you know, but like, it was like, I set those types of goals. So like I did become goal oriented where I set goals, but I wasn't actually processing everything else. You know, I was like, okay, I'm going to honor Travis by running a marathon. And now I'm going to do this. And now I'm going to do that. But it wasn't, I didn't take a step back for a long time, for years, take a step back to say, okay, what am I actually doing with my life? As opposed to finding these small, small things to latch onto to say like, what's next? What's next? What's next? It was like, how am I going to be intentional about setting goals that are meaningful and just, and, and less about like goals that help me cope with the loss. Right. And so 
that was something that I learned along the way and like how you, how you find these goals that can really help, help you to process and manage everything you're dealing with, as opposed to being a bandaid for what you're dealing with. So, so how did you really deal with it then? Because I, I, I get it, right? I mean, you, you search for a dopamine hit and then another one, and then another one, and then another one, you, you default to your strengths. I'm a goal, goal oriented person. I'm going to, I'm going to charge the hill, you know, and you find how to do that in your own way. And so what did it look like to really, really deal with it? To really, really deal with it. It looked like me sitting down in front of a therapist and actually sharing what I was feeling. And I'll tell you, I would have run a marathon every weekend to not have to sit down in front of a therapist. Like that's how uncomfortable for me it was. The, the quiet room with the waterfall and the, the bookshelf yeah. full of, you know, important stuff. Well, it's, it's funny because a lot of people um, will comment to me and say, gosh, you're, you know, you're so strong. You never show emotion. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you get up every day and, and share your brother's story and not break down and cry. And it's actually a character flaw for me because I am so uncomfortable in sharing my emotions. I, I remember when I first cried in, in a therapy session and I was like, I mean, I must've been beat red because I was so embarrassed that someone outside of like my husband, my dad, or my kids was seeing me shed a tear. But that was like breakthrough number one, where I was like, oh, oh my God, that, that felt good. And that was the release that I needed. So I am a huge advocate for, for therapy and for working through your issues in that way and for checking your mental health and, and not always saying like, I think it was part of my upbringing, like my dad, and he hates when I say this and I say it in a loving way, but like, if I was dealing with something where I was like, oh, dad, I'm really stressed out. You know, I'm, I've got a big math test or dad, I'm really sad. I got in a fight with my boyfriend. He'd be like, go for a run. You know, like running cured everything, <laughs> whether it was, you know, a paper cut or like you're failing mental health. All you had to do was go for a run. And so that's how I was brought up. And so this idea of like vulnerability and really saying like, hey, I'm struggling. Like I need some help. I need someone to talk to. Now, today, my dad is an incredible advocate. I mean, he still pushes the the healthy mind and body, you got to get out there and be active. And I do too, but he's an incredible advocate for knowing that like, you have to find help when you need it. You can't just turn to your, your spouse and think they're going to give you the answers to work through what you're dealing with. As much as my husband tried, you know, I had to sit down with someone where they could help me process everything that was going on in my head. And that was the breakthrough for me. That's what really got me through. First, your your dad. Every time I've seen him, he looks like he he just went for a run, and he's just high. He's on the endorphin high, right, from his run. You know, his his hair is is freshly combed, and you know, he just he's like full of full of life, you know. And but you know, on on the other side of the house, I mean, you got officially diagnosed with PTSD. I did, and and you thought this was a, a laughable kind of joke, like that's impossible. Yeah, less like laughable, more like I was pissed off. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I started going to therapy. 
uh, I went once a week and, you know, I sat down and, and basically it was just like, I was talking to someone, right. I didn't, and she would take some notes and she would ask me some probing questions. And I don't know what it was, but every time I walked out, I felt better. And I was like, okay. And she definitely like talked to me about techniques that could help as I was working through different anxieties I was feeling and, and different emotions that I was feeling. And, and so I always would feel better. And I think it was like eight weeks in to my therapy sessions she said like, okay, well, I, I, I'm definitely ready to give you a, a clinical diagnosis of what you're dealing with. And I was like, you know, I was stunned. I was like, well, I didn't know I was getting a clinical diagnosis. I thought I was just here because I obviously suffered something pretty terrible and that you, I'm coming to therapy for you to help me with it. And, you know, and she said, well, you, you know, you, you definitely have a uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I don't remember how the rest of the session went, but I remember I came home and I called Amy Looney, who um, is one of my closest friends. And her husband was my brother's roommate at the Naval Academy. And he was also killed uh, in Afghanistan three years after Travis. And so. And they're next to each other right now at Arlington. Brothers forever. Yes. And so um, I called Amy um, and Amy was like very proactive. Um, Amy is not someone who's afraid to cry in front of people. She has no problem sharing her emotions. And like literally within weeks of Brendan being killed, she was in a therapy session and, you know, right away that helped her. And so I remember I called her and I was like, I'm so pissed off. My therapist, um, just told me that I have PTSD and, and I, I mean, I was very upset. I was crying on the phone with her. I couldn't believe it. And, and I almost felt like, I almost felt guilty because at that time, my identification with PTSD was something that afflicted our men and women in service that were obviously seeing things that were unimaginable and dealing with things and under um, enormous amounts of stress. And I was like, I felt a little bit like, undeserving even of that title. It's almost like I don't have the right to have PTSD yeah. because they've done all of this that I haven't done. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm just sitting at home. I lost my brother, but you know, and so, and she was like, Ryan, I was diagnosed with PTSD like two years ago. Like what? I don't understand what you're so. And, and so then I actually started to like process. Okay. And, and then I actually started to research like, oh, like you can deal with PTSD if you're in a car accident. Like this isn't, there, there was so much stigma around it at this time that it was like just for the military. But in fact, post-traumatic stress had been around forever, right? Um, and it and it ailed many people from all over. And so it was recognizing that diagnosis, accepting that diagnosis, and then being able, I remember the first time I shared that I'd been diagnosed with PTSD and I it wasn't planned, but it was our first Spartan Leadership Summit for the Travis Manning Foundation. It was in San Diego, that's four years ago now. You know, we're in this beautiful um, hall and, um, you know, we've got 100 veterans from all over the country there and a bunch of service partners. And, I'm, you know, I'm kind of giving them a talk uh, to close out. It was at the end of the um, summit. And we had been with these people and, and I just felt like, they had opened up in such enormous ways. And, you know, there were definitely some veterans that were in the room that were struggling, that were in different places. And, 
And I felt like over the course of that three days, like people had really started to find a new sense and purpose. And I was just so inspired by everyone. And right before someone said something like, gosh, you know, um, if we could all be as strong as you, as I was like walking up onto the stage and I, and so I just started talking, I'm like, oh, by the way, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD and I just kind of threw it out there. And there was just kind of this kind of collective, like what, you know? And then I'm like looking at my staff, like, oh crap, should I have said that? Like, they don't know that. And, but I was so glad it was the first time where I'm like, I'm putting it out there. You know, like I am not, I'm not this person that does not fall down. I have incredible flaws and I struggle just like everybody else does. Well, you say failure is a bruise, not a tattoo. Yeah. I I love it. Yeah. It's one of the values at Travis Manning Foundation, along with my own personal favorite value. So, yeah, you know, you think about this idea, like both personally and professionally, like I've failed at things many, many times. And, you know, I think it's this idea of like, if we let our failures define us, you know, we're not going to be able to run towards that next big dream, or we're not going to be able, you know, if you look at life as a series of ebbs and flows, uh, you know, that after each failure, you know, there's going to be a success and you just got to keep going. you got to stay the course. You, yeah, you, you're right. And when you talk about grief, it's, it just, it's, it's so hard. Grief is, is all over the place, right? And it's hard to get a foothold onto things and to figure, find the right therapist, the one that makes you feel good. And like you, you look forward to seeing because it's so easy to say, no, that just didn't connect with me. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put that off or something like that. And, you know, for me, it took me like about a year and a half after losing my father to find a grief observed by C.S. Lewis. I mean, that's an older book. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, I was really reaching to, to have something resonate with me. And it did, even though it was a little antiquated, but it did, it did inspire me to say, you know, I need to have some perspective from this. And, you know, he, he writes something about like, we don't know where these paths are taking us, you know, these little roads we take. And sometimes we have to go backwards to get back where we're going. And if you could zoom out, you know, imagine like Google earth, you could zoom out. You just don't see, you know, the bigger picture where you are right now. You're just living in the moment, trying to get to the next day. You know, the book that you've given to the world, I would have really have liked to have that book at that time. Cause I think it's just a little bit more modern. It speaks to me, you know, you're my, my contemporary. And, and I think that what you've given you've given the world something, a foothold. And I think that's a really great gift to give people. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because this book came out in November and I wrote it with two other women. Both of them lost their husbands in service to this country, but the book was not about, you know, losing someone in military service. It was you know, how do you deal with the knock at the door? And the knock at the door doesn't have to be the loss of a loved one. It could be anything. And so when we were going out and doing the press tour for it, I'd say, you know, the knock at the door could be the loss of a job. It could be the implosion of a relationship, you know, all these different things. And I have turned to my own words in the book about what a knock at the door means right now, because I think our entire country received a knock at the door um, in the beginning of March, right? 
And so this idea that like life can change in an instant and it's all about, I mean, you can't help if you're someone on social media, like going through and seeing like you can take two very different roads to what's happening right now. And I've been very open with my kids about saying like, they're, when are we going to go back to school, mom? And when are things going to be back to normal? And when are we, and I'm very upfront to say, I don't know. And guess what? Nobody knows that the answer is not out there yet. But what I do know is we're going to make the best of what we have now. And we're also going to look at how fortunate we are compared to others, right? In the same situation. And so um, it's interesting because in November, I certainly wasn't out there saying, you know, it could be a pandemic, you know, it could be all these things. But, you know, you look at where we are now and I, I keep saying like, gosh, this entire country just got a knock at the door. And the biggest thing we can do is not only be the best version of ourselves while we're going through it, but it's it's about setting the example for how we respond to it and how we respond to what's happening present day, you know, and, and that's that's all we can do, you know, and and but again, not taking away the fact like, are there nights where I've gone to bed crying, saying like, I can't believe this is the life that that we're living right now, you know? Um, yeah, I certainly have. Have I had pity parties for myself? Of course. Do I have a right to? Not really, no. Not compared to a lot of others, but you know, I'm not gonna deny that I have, but I, I did. And that's why I put that post up on um, social media the other day about struggling well. And I'm like, yeah, we're all struggling right now. I did that not just for others, I did that for myself. Cause I was like, you know, Gut check, Ryan, like stop feeling sorry for yourself, you know? So what does it mean now? What does struggling well now look like to you? What What's the lead that that we should follow from, from you, from Travis Manning Foundation, from the, the way of life that I, I would say you represent, but we represent it. I'm, I'm following you. I'm a, I'm a proud supporter and a proud follower of your vision. So what should we be doing? I mean, I think... One of the most amazing things that I have seen personally through this pandemic is how our members at the Travis Manning Foundation have responded. And, you know, we say every day at, at TMF that our military community are the best examples that this country has of men and women who live lives of, of character and, and live life in service to others. And I always believed that. But what I have seen over the last several weeks since this pandemic has hit has been nothing less of extraordinary in terms of how our veterans and Gold Star families have stepped up to serve others. I think it was, we went into like a lockdown here in Pennsylvania and said like, hey, we are here like literally just fielding so many unbelievable ideas for how they can play a part in helping with um, food insecurities, with, you know, blood donations, everything. Incorporating GORUCK. I don't know if you guys have tracked, like one of the coolest things that we've been doing is this ruck up to Corona. And we've got these veterans all across the country who are like rucking to the grocery store 
loading the rucksack with groceries and then rucking to food banks. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, we've seen it. I, I got a big shit eating grin on my face right now. Right. I mean, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. But you know, here I'm like, I'm sitting back in my house and you know, I'm behind my computer every day with the team and, and they're just sending all this stuff to me that's happening. And I'm like, it's so incredible to see like the first thought that, that the veterans, you know, that are part of the Travis Manning Foundation, the first thing they think of is like, how can I help others? And, you know, I'd like to think that that's inherently how we all are, but like, I don't know that it is, you know? And I think like when you look at this group of individuals and what they're doing, I've just been blown away. You know, it was great for me to see coming across my feeds, the character isn't canceled initiatives. And I, I read that and I just nodded my head like, yes, spot on, you know, yeah. like this, this is a moment in time where service really matters, you know, yeah. knowing, looking to the person, the left of you and the right of you, checking in on your neighbors, making sure that, you know, elderly neighbors getting groceries and, you know, supplies or getting their dog walked because they, they don't feel safe to get out or, you know, looking to the healthcare workers and people that are, their lives are just completely turned upside down, you know, characters and canceled. And I, I, TMF has always just been remarkable for its sort of grassroots ability to mobilize a ton of people to do these sorts of things. It's, it feels old school in a way, but in, in like the best kind of way. Well, yeah, it's funny because my dad, when people ask about like, oh, you know, tell us about the Travis Manning Foundation or, and he's explaining it. He always says, you know, we're a grassroots organization, one community at a time. And we are, I mean, even as large as we've gotten, like we are still a grassroots community and it is about one, affecting one community at a time. And I love like, Yesterday, our we still have like our one of our administrative assistants. She's still, you know, all of our phones are transferred to all of our admin people. And and she sent an email to her staff and she goes, I don't know which one of you it was, but Arthur just called. Um, and he wanted to thank the TMF staff member that dropped groceries off at his house. And no one, no one stepped forward because that's how our staff is. They're just humble people. No one was like, it was me. You know, and she's like, but I don't know which one of you was, but like it made my day to receive a phone call from 85 year old Arthur thanking us for dropping groceries off at his house. And then and and to think about this idea of how like how acts of service and how doing these types of things can inspire others. We got this video in from a hospital. It got sent to our social media manager and she posted it. And I and I, I see this video and I send her a text. And I'm like, where did this come from? And she's like, they sent it to us. And it was ER, a whole ER staff. So the video was like 20 um, nurses and doctors all in full PPE and they're wearing masks. And the one guy says, you know, we want to thank everyone for your support. People ask us why we're out here doing what we do every day. It's because in the words of Travis Mannion, we're living by, if not me, then who? And then they all yell, if not me, then who? And just to think about like how those five words and like the movement that we've created can like inspire those on the front line right now. Like that was so special for me to think about like, wow, that, that those five words were able to inspire them and like, God, I'm so incredibly indebted for everything they're doing right now. That's the bridge. 
that's yeah. that is the bridge. I mean, I think more than ever, our country is feeling, you know, the war feels far away, right? You, you sure. don't feel it unless you've got someone in it, you know, or you're you're in it yourself. Mm -hmm. And now it's like something's changing where people and like that we know that, you know, grocery store workers and, you know, truck drivers and delivery people and our healthcare, you know, workers, all these people that are essential in keeping our, the fabric of our society together. And you're absolutely right. It's the movement of, if not me, then who that's connecting all these, it's the same sort of discipline and it's the same integrity that Travis had, that is, it is pulsing through, you know, our nation right now. And it's just, I, I agree. It's just a really amazing time. And so the interesting part about that story, you know, your, your brother was at the Eagles game with your husband and he was about to go back for his second deployment to Iraq. And I was in Iraq in 2007, by the way, you know, and that was a really hard time. I mean, at, w when you describe the, the faces and the names coming across the news every night. That was our way of life back then. I mean, that was a thing. Yeah. And it, it took its toll on, on us and, and our families and stuff. And so I, I can completely relate to, to Dave's comment to Travis about, hey, well, why don't, why don't we break your ankle or something, right? I'll push you or you jump off of this and you know, Travis's response was basically if, if, you know, someone's got to go, I'm trained, I'm ready. This is my job. If not me, then who? And, and it's, it's one of those things. It's so simple and simplicity being the ultimate sophistication. And it's just one of those things that I love that, that, that has been adopted by the organization. And that's become the big rallying cry because right now there's, there's a huge need for servant leadership at, at the community level, at the national, at every level. And so what, what I think we need is another JFK moment from the top down, which is ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And in, in lieu of that, until that day comes when we have that leader and my fingers are crossed, I'm, I'm not holding my breath, but my fingers are crossed, you know, it's look at the community level, you have these organizations. I'm, I can't say it an, enough times or strongly enough how much I believe in, in your vision and in everything that TMF stands for and just in your family's way of, of life. And we're seeing a lot of leadership at the community level. And that is inspiring other leadership at the community level. It's amazing how that works. You get people that are close to you. You can, you can get on all your text message threads and you can, you know, bitch and moan about every bad decision that everybody else makes. But, but does, your, does your neighbor have groceries? D does, does someone that's 85 live in two blocks over, do they need help getting their trash out? H how about focus on that? And then how about go back to what your dad said, go for a run or go for a ruck or go outside, do some exercise, take care of yourself as you're looking to take care of others. And that's the movement that I believe I'm, I'm seeing out of TMF and I just, I, I love it. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if you remember, but we were talking about how GoRuck and TMF could work together even more. And I remember there was something you said, like, 
you know, we were talking about like MOUs and, you know, how do we do this and do that? And you said like, it can't come from us. Like it's, it can't be you and I saying go rock and TMF are now going to be partners. And this is how we're going to work together. You were like, it's got to come from the bottom up. And so let's give the guidance to show how that, that will happen. But like, it's got to happen naturally and it's got to happen from the bottom up. And it did. And, you know, we have fantastic corporate partners. We have fantastic service partners, but no partnership in the history of the Travis Manning Foundation has been more effortless or more impactful than the partnership we've had with GoRa. And when you talk about this idea, like one of my favorite pictures um, is from our Operation Legacy um, campaign last year. It's a GoRa club and they are um, rucking through Arlington Cemetery. You know, it's just this idea that like, would these people even be doing this if it wasn't for us coming together as an organization? And certainly there's so much overlap in what you guys are about as a company and what we're about as an organization. And I think that's why it was so natural and why the, why the partnership worked so well. But just to see these people who are, you know, essentially coming to Go Rock to put on a rucksack and, and get physically active, but then all of a sudden, you know, they find themselves like participating in national days of service through a veteran serving organization uh, um, that happened in these little pockets. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, look, we're like our, our organizations are, are very much combined in how we're doing things. Yeah. You know, and you get to a certain size and it's still for me. And as you tell this story, I know it is for you. It's that's what it all comes back to. I mean, how many people were out there doing an op legacy event in Arlington? I mean, what, 10, 15, 20? I mean, not, we're not talking 200 or 2000 or 20,000, right? Yeah. But when you start to say there's so much impact and, and my other takeaway is, look, there's so many people out there that are looking to do more stuff like this. They just need a little hey, this is where you go to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, I mean, Travis Manion Foundation, if you're, you're a veteran or a civilian, if, if you, you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself, you want to serve others, if you want to make a difference in your community, if you want to reap the rewards of those service, then, then join the mission. Yeah, because a lot of people are asking themselves, how can I help right now? you know, if you don't sew, I don't sew, you know, you don't want me sewing your mask. (laughs) There's a lot of people that are going to do that better than me, but I can do a lot of other things. Right. And, and, you know, how can I insert myself into this community and help? And that's not always clear to people just the same way that, you know, when you're dealing with grief, you don't always know where to start. Yeah. You know, often it takes a friend to say, Hey, I'm doing this, come along with me. And I think what we see at TMF and at GORUCK is that's what really works. It's the person to the left and the right of you that says, you know, we need to get out for a ruck because you've been, you've been kind of down lately. You need, we need to talk or we need to go get outside of ourselves. We need to go help this person. Then like, you, you know, we'll feel better about things and get to talk and get whatever's not bothering you off your chest sort of thing. Yeah. It was, uh, my training partner, Krista, she lives just a few miles down the road and 
um, we trained for the marathon together, rucking. And the other day she called me, she's like, um, I'm ready to ruck. I'll walk six feet apart from you, but like, I, I need to put the rucksack on and get out there. And I'm like, I- I'm with you. So I, I rock. The first time I rucked was with you, Jason in Georgia. There was nothing in the rucksack. Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't have anything. I had like a sweatshirt and it was like, hey, put this ruck on. And and so I'm wearing this backpack and we're walking around this beautiful lake. And I'm like, and you're filling me in on the philosophy of like, you know, the great thing about rucking is like, you can be conversational and, you know, it's about community and the camaraderie. And I'm like, I love this, you know? And so you guys send me an awesome rucksack. And then I order some of your, your plates and then I put it in. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, so this (laughs) is actually rocking. But, you know, training for that marathon, you know, I ran that first marathon in 2007 and then I rocked it last year. Training for that marathon was so much more enjoyable. We had this awesome group, two veterans and um, that were members of the, the Travis Made Foundation, incredible volunteers with TMF. And then Krista, who's our special events director. And we had some of the most incredible times, like rucking, you know, 20 miles together leading up to that marathon. You know, there was just something about it where like, I I got it. Like it was that, okay, I understand what rucking's about. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was just like, I got to get out. Like I'd been going for runs, but it's like super solitary. And, you know, and I said to my 11 year old and 13 year old, I said, why don't we go for a walk? And Travis has like a trail. It's a trail, like a couple miles from our house. And, you know, it's a a trail that leads through like along the Neshaminy Creek and it's dedicated. There's a plaque that's dedicated to my brother. And so I said, we'll go, um, we'll go walk Travis's trail. And so I grabbed the rucksack and, you know, I threw a 20 pound weight in it. We got going and, you know, and I felt like, all right, I'm still like getting physical activity even though we're walking and we ended up like diverting from the trail and we like jumped through the Creek, jumped on old logs. Like we just had the best time and we got back and I was like, I needed that so badly. Like I'm, I'm a true convert. And when I ran that marathon in 2007, people are like, Oh, are you, are you going to run next year? And I'm like, there's, there's, you couldn't pay me to run next year. Like I am done. And I crossed that finish line this year. I mean, I also had you with a huge like grin on your face. I didn't have the same, but like you were so positive and got me through those last few miles. And right afterwards, when people are like, are you doing it next year? Like, I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I haven't, and that feeling has not waned. I'm like, I'm in, let's do this. So I'm fully, from that time on the lake, I guess that was, that was like a year ago. Yeah. It was our summit last May. So that was like oh, a year yeah. ago. This feels like 10 years ago. Cause, yeah. cause so uh, we were partnered for a while before that, but we had never spent we any yes. face-to-face we time. Were. It was just the first time you and I had met um, face-to-face, but we were already doing a ton of stuff. But like from that, putting on that rucksack with you last May to now, it's just, it, it's just kind of crazy. So is it going to be canceled this year? I, I don't know. People started asking me that. I hope not. I mean, we can, we can organize our own little, our own little squad. If we want to, we can end up at the same spot. I bet they're, yeah. they're big enough. They're probably planning for something virtual, but you know, hopefully it'll be on. Be nice. Yeah. Virtual, virtual would be kind of tough. Yeah. All right. Well, Ryan, we, you know, there's, there's a lot more to your, 
to your story. Your, your mother set up the foundation. You give all credit where credit is due, right? God bless moms. And, and yours was obviously exceptional. Your family thought it was going to be a way for her to grieve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it turned into something that, that really is a, a national movement that's really, really important to, to a lot of us. And, you know, as if it wasn't enough to lose your brother, then, then your mom passed away to cancer, which digs up a whole new slew of scars and loss and grief and, and all the stuff you thought that you knew how to go through. And, and you've got to go through it again, only it, it gets harder. I mean, it's just cumulative at some point. You, you, you know, you lose one buddy in war. It doesn't make the second one that you lose easier. It's, it's harder because it's... And your story is, is just so inspiring to me. It's a reminder to me that there, there's always a, a silver lining in, in all of this. And you talk about being blessed. And, you know, I, I don't know a, a better, stronger message that people need to hear right now than when, when you can sit and, and feel blessed where you are. You know, your family, your mission, your purpose, the difference that you're, you're helping to bring about in, in others people, other people's lives through Travis Manion Foundation. What's your sort of parting shot here for, for people as far as, I mean, how, how can they bottle up a little bit of what you've got? Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you talk about the word blessed. And so that was, that was something I said, like off the cuff in a television interview, I said to the reporter, you know, I feel incredibly blessed to, to do the work I do when I was talking about the Travis Manning Foundation. And I said, I wake up every day feeling so blessed. And, and she said, well, that's, that's an interesting choice of words, given that the work you do is a result of, you know, your brother dying. And then I got like very uncomfortable, you know, and then I was like, oh, I, I hope they don't put that in the interview. I don't want that being, you know, I don't want that being shown. They, they did. And, but then I was like digesting it and trying to think about it. And I'm like, no, you know what? I do feel blessed. And I think, listen, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and try to sugarcoat and say, like, I, I haven't had a lot thrown at me in, in my adult life, you know, in the last 10 years, you know, I've dealt with a lot of crap. And, and it's been really tough and it's been really challenging, but like, I do feel blessed for the opportunities that I have and for the, the, the people that I have in my life. Like I'm incredibly grateful that I had 26 years with someone that taught me so much about life, about how to live and who still to this day, 13 years after his death sets the example of how I want to be as a person. And not everybody has that. Most people don't have that, you know? So I'm not going to let his loss define me as like, poor me, I lost my brother, he was killed. No, I'm, I'm so incredibly blessed that I had him as a brother. And, and likewise, you know, I had a mom who was a, the epitome of a military spouse. And you look at right now, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on military spouses and the the burdens that they carry and and everything that they deal with and guess what when my mom was a military spouse there was no limelight on the military spouse that is a new phenomenon it's definitely much appreciated and much deserved but they weren't telling the Janet Mannions back in 1985 that like you're the military spouse you know we support you too she was just a woman who had to pick up 
her kids and move somewhere and start over and be the caretaker and and take care of the children and and make sure that everything was running. And then she's blown with the fact that her only son is killed in war. And again, for me to have the opportunity to watch this woman and, and how she reacted to that loss, she was able to take that loss and catapult it into a national movement that not just affected hundreds of thousands of people, but helped hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, again, I'm I'm so incredibly fortunate to have two people like that as role models in my life, even though they're no longer here. And and I I say to my staff, I still say to them today, like most of the things we do today as an organization were things my mom thought up in 2008. And we just execute off that same vision and mission and tie a little bow around it. But I think all of us have to be very intentional at looking at our lives and not looking at not just the loss, but looking at the tough times and looking at the the challenges and the adversity that we face and, and looking at the things that we're so incredibly fortunate to have because each and every one of us have something. We can all point to something. You could look at my profile, right? Like you could look at my profile on a piece of paper and be like, oh man, that's a lot. You know, that's, I wouldn't want to be that girl. And all of us could take those things out of our own lives. We could all put those things on a piece of paper where you'd be like, hmm, that's a lot to digest. But what I think we all need to do as individuals is take those pieces and say, you know, this is how they define me to be the best version of myself. And that's what I do every single day. And I think that's what, that's my parting words, you know, use the, the challenges, the struggles, the adversity that you face in your life and use them to fuel you to be the best version of yourself today. Because I know more than most people that time is fleeting, that tomorrow is not guaranteed. And so I never take a day and waste it. If that was something I could have learned before my brother was killed, if there's anything I wish I would have known before that day, it would have been that. And so for those that haven't had to deal with stuff like that, like take that and just trust me on it. Don't waste a day. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. You know, I'm, I'm proud to call you a friend. We're huge supporters of Travis Manning Foundation. I've proudly got my TMF shirt on right this second. My fingers crossed we're going to be back in DC for the Marine Corps Marathon. We're going to rock it again together. We're going to have bigger smiles this time because we did it last year. Now, now we're the experts. And if there's ever anything that we can do, we're, we're in. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. So Ryan Mannion has left the digital confines of our garage podcast studio. What, what'd you think? Uh, you know, Ryan, she's always makes me laugh. She's, she's got a great sense of humor. And I think it's amazing when you think about all the things that she's been through, like she said, in, in her adult life, if she just focused on, you know, those things and, and staring at her belly button, it, it would probably be a pretty sad day, but she's looked outward and, you know, carried on like she said, something that her mother started. And, you know, what I've always loved about Ryan and, and the TMF is that they feel like a family. That's, that's really comfortable for people to join up with. 
I imagine, I imagine their house was like the house you wanted to hang out with. Like, let's go over to the Minions house because they're, they're fun. Yeah, it's exactly like that. And that's, that's the sense that we've always gotten around them specifically, you know, her, her and her father. And, and they, you know, we, were, we spent a little bit of a fair amount of time with them at the Army-Navy game and the gala that they put on up there. And those two are, as you can imagine, really tight. There's a really special bond that kind of comes from from both of them being around each other. It's just it's a little bit of magic, and and you can just feel it. And it's it and you know like we've talked about grief and you know how people process loss. And unfortunately, when things get tough and things get hard, it it can break people apart. It can it can shatter bonds. And that's not what you see coming out of, out of the Manion family. And, and, you know, Ryan particularly, you know, it, it comes out in the story she tells is that she's still friends with her, her girlfriends that she had during that time. And that this has brought them closer. She's still friends with, um, you know, people that were her brother's friends and, and her family is still together. I mean, of course, I'm sure they've been through a lot together and, and it probably wasn't always just, Hey, let's, let's go do all these great things. It was, it's people put it, people put in the work, you know, in relationships, it doesn't always have to be tied up with a nice bow. It actually, you're actually helping each other get through to the next stage. And it's not, you're not all going through it at the same time. And I think, you know, what TMF does now in a, in, you know, at a grassroots level, but one that keeps growing community by community is saying, Hey, you might not be in a great place now, but I can help you. And then you're going to turn around and help me when I'm not in a great place. Yeah. So some of the takeaways, if you're going through something bad, which is a lot of, it's, it's a great place to find out what's really going on in your life, right? Which is, hey, you need to focus on the physical side of, of your health, right? You know, her dad's note about, hey, go for a run. Whatever the thing is, go for a run. You know, God bless the consistency in that, you know? And I think that's just go be active physically. You'll sleep better. You'll, whatever the case is, it will wear your body out. And that's a really good thing. It's easy to forget this day and age. The, the other part is you, you need a community to lean upon, friends. And then, you know, you, you just can't be too prideful to, to ask for help, like legitimately ask for help. And, you know, M, you and I went through this, right? The idea of, hey, we probably need to go talk to a counselor. That's a really scary step to, to take. And, and we did it and it worked out in its own way. And it was certainly something when I, I think about that, it, it really shouldn't be so scary. But, it, and it also, sometimes the results are delayed. You know, you might go to a therapy session or you might talk to someone and you might say, eh, I don't know if that helped. But then you find out looking back, I was actually doing a lot of work and I didn't realize it at the time. You know, it's the same thing. Like you work out, you don't like get fit just from one workout. <laughs> you get, you know, you have to actually it be consistent. It depends on the workout, M. <laughs> no, but you have to be consistent, right? And it's a, it's, you know, half the battle of showing up sort of thing. You know, you got to just got to keep showing up. You don't get the sense from Ryan that she's ever been okay with thinking of herself as the victim. And yet at the same time, she has to be vulnerable. She has to be honest with herself. She has to take care of herself and say, 
you know, I'm struggling right now with whatever's going on and, and to just be okay with that, putting it somewhere and working it out one way or the other. So bottom line is hers is a great story. Her family is just good people. Her organization, Travis Manning Foundation, I, I can't, I can't give you enough nice words of support for them. And if if you're looking for something good to do with your life, with some time in your life, figure out a way to attach yourself to good people, good organizations. Travis Manning Foundation is is very much where you want to spend your time. And it's refreshing when you've got someone who's willing to share their their vulnerabilities. And I mean, you can tell... This has been an incremental thing for for Ryan to to share. I mean, I can very much relate to that. And you feel that there's some greater good. I mean, I take a lot of inspiration from her and her story. And we're we're just really proud partners with them and and with her and her family. So if you're out there looking for something to support, support Travis Manning Foundation, you should check out her book, A Knock at the Door. Thanks for listening. We we really appreciate your tuning in. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.